Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Jamie Bauer for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 5th, 2017, and this is being recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello. Hi. Um, so let's start off. Tell me about um, where you were born and where you grew up. So uh, I was born in New York City. I grew up in Stuyvesant Town, which is a small middle-class housing development on the east side of Manhattan. Or a large. Or a large, uh, yeah. Okay, it's a large house. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I grew up there. I went to PS40, mm -hmm. the public school there, and then to Hunter High School. Okay. And what were your dynamics with your family like? So uh, my family is uh, Jewish but secular, very secular. And they just wanted a nice Jewish girl. And I popped out of the womb as a tomboy. And there were a lot of bad dynamics about that. So... Tell, tell me about so, some of them. Uh, lots and lots and lots of early, you know, two, three, four, five-year-old discussions about dresses and what I would wear and what I wouldn't wear. And uh, I have an older brother who's two years older than me, and I was always stealing his stuff and always trying to go out in it and uh, always tearing up whatever my parents got me to destroy it so that I couldn't wear it. So a, a lot of that kind of very typical, I think, uh, young child stuff. And my family um, pretty much got what was going on and didn't like it and really just tried to force me to um, act like a girl, and I just rebelled, rebelled, rebelled against it. What were your parents like outside of home? Do you know the kind of work they did and so, what their uh, lives were like? My mom uh, was a homemaker, and my dad worked for a very uh, for a firm that made brass plaques. He was like a salesman, mm -hmm. and uh, he was active in our local synagogue. Uh, but again, sec it, like with the youth group and stuff, not very religious. And uh, my mom uh, took care of me and my brother, and. You know, was very sort of narcissistically attached to having us be good kids, and had a real problem with my uh, not with my non-conformities. Uh, what was Stytown like in the sixties? Uh, it was a little piece of suburbia plunked down in Manhattan. So it was um, first of all seg racially segregated. So it was only white people and the few. People who were not white were African diplomats from the UN, and it was very well. It was very straight, uh, and people lived there because they wanted to live uh, in Manhattan, but not have all of the difficulties of living in the city. So it had its own little police force and a lot of rules and regulations about what you could do and what you couldn't do there. So it was a very regulated. Uh, part of the city compared to the rest of the city. So, uh, Stytown's also in the middle of what's now the East Village. Was what the Lower East Side? Then? Yeah, it was. Um, it was beginning to be the the East Village. Um, and one of the issues in Stytown was like which public school district you were mm -hmm. in, 
because if you were in the PS40 in junior high school 104 district, that was very white. If you were a little further east and a little further south, then you had to go to the regular East Village schools, which were considered much more mixed and therefore less desirable. Do you remember um, in your childhood being around the East Village, what that was uh, like? Uh, I do remember being around it. I was much more interested in it when I had like 12 or 13. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I remember as a kid that my parents would go into the more central village and drop us off in Washington Square Park and tell us what time to meet them back at the fountain in Washington Square Park and we were allowed to roam wow. for two or three hours by was, ourselves. Was that common? I think, yeah. I mean, I think it was common to let eight, 10, 12-year-old kids do their thing. And what was Washington Square Park like? It was a lot of fun because there were performers and hippies and different kinds of people and it was just, we weren't allowed to like leave the park, but there was plenty to amuse oneself with there as well as playgrounds and... Yeah. It was just very interesting and happening. So when you were a teenager, you started engaging around the East Village a little bit? Yeah, a little bit more. Can you tell us some early memories of that? Uh, Going to listen to music and, uh, you know, at the time, no... You know, in the 70s, no one carded anybody, and as long as you had the money, people were happy to let you into bars and happy to let you buy a beer and happy to have you listen to music. So, it, you know, the whole central to West Village was uh, very accommodating. What were your friendships like? So I went to Hunter High School, which at the time, my year was still all girls. Um, and very intense, and for me as a, not at that point out queer kid, but definitely being the way I am now was the way I was then in a lot of ways. Um, It allowed me to skip the entire dating and boys issue. And I had friends and I hung out and I had friends from all over the city and went to every neighborhood and, you know, it was a, it was a really nice time to live in New York. So, so you won the fight with your parents around gender presentation. You know, I would say that it was a constant battle without much giving in, and uh, you know the the thing that changed everything was in 1968, uh, the city of New York changed the rules so that girls did not have to wear dresses to school, and from that point on, I never wore a dress to school. You know, you know. Before that, like every day, it was a battle. Uh, but once they changed the rules so that girls could wear pants to school, it was pretty clear I was never putting a dress on again. And so I only wore a dress for what I would call state occasions, and I haven't worn one since 1975. Congratulations! So, <laughs> so Hunter High School. Um, I, what did? How did you spend your free time in high school? Um, listening to folk music and smoking pot, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, reading. Um, and Hunter was very intellectual, uh, pretentiously intellectually oriented, so we pretentiously went to foreign films and museums and read books we didn't understand and tried to act like we were part of the New York intellectual elite. Mm-hmm. So, 
And so you had some exposure to, it sounds like, a hippie counterculture? There was like a hippie counterculture. There was a lot of anti-war stuff, and particularly Hunter. It was sort of the tail end of the Vietnam War, and so there we went to demonstrations and... Mm -hmm. And were there, did you develop many relationships in the movement or the scene? Um, no, I was, you know, I think prior to, so I came out like the moment I left home to go to college. Yeah. Uh, and that allowed me to make a lot, to make more connections to people. Um, so before you came out, you were a little more socially isolated. Well, I mean, had some I, friends, I had I had friends. I had a girlfriend that, oh. but we were like best friends. But uh, we were in love, and she ended up uh, self-identifying as straight, but always sleeping with women on the side. But and, and still to this date, um, but. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, for me, sort of in 1975, discovering sort of butch culture gave me a way to place myself in society other than just being, like, eccentric, that there was a, a, a there were words for it, and that was uh, sort of liberating. Tell me, uh, what's your first memory of encountering butch culture, as you say? Uh, well... Definitely the first was Bonnie and Clyde's in New York um, because you walked in and like half the room looked like me and the other half were really attractive. <laughs> then, you know, so, so that Where was, was Bonnie and Clyde's? That was on uh, West 3rd Street in the village and I went there a couple of times while I was still in high school and seriously underage. Um, Tell us a little bit about it for those who might not know. Uh, so it was... Uh, a bar. It was sort of a working class, very racially mixed bar with a lot of butch women and a pool table and beer. And, you know, I wouldn't say it was like really friendly, but it was there. And it was a place where a 16 year old or 17 year old kid could go and have a beer and relax and watch. And just being able to watch was really important, and just to see other people. So I did run into one of my gym teachers there who knew I was underage, so we both swore each other to secrecy, which was fine. Um, and did you have a sense of kind of what the broader landscape for butch femme communities were? Not until... So when I, when I really came out... Yeah. Um, and then I and I, I so I live I was I went to school in Boston and I uh, really sort of came out more fully there and there was a bar called the Saint which was like a famous dyke bar and I went there a lot um, and went to demonstrations and sort of got more felt like I was more part of a community. What what kind of demonstrations? So there were, you know, so like in the mid-70s, so we're talking like 76, 77, 78, there were the Anita Bryant demonstrations. There were gay rights demonstrations. I mean, there were like, even though people had come out, there were no rights, so there was no legal protection for anything. Uh, bars were raided. I was in a bar when it got raided. Um, 
you know, so people had the liber sense of liberation, but no rights. So there were a lot of demonstrations just for very basic things. So these are uh, gay rights organizing? Yeah, yeah, gay rights. So yeah. that brought together both gay men and... Yeah. And yeah. what word did he use for the you know, community of women at that time? You know, I probably identified as gay because yeah. I always had that problem of identifying as female or a lesbian and I never really embraced that as uh, comfortably as I thought I was going to. So, you know, I identified as gay. Um, I identified as butch. Um, and did you have a sense, so this uh, gay rights movement context in what the uh, late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have a sense of what its relationship was to other movements at the time? You know, the, I was aware of all the splits. Right, right. Because, you know, there were... Uh, there were sectarian left, there were uh, lesbian separatists. I was not really interested in lesbian separatists. Um, in the Northeast, they were quite ambivalent about which femme. They, right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I wasn't too into the sectarian left. I actually was was most comfortable with the liberation end of the gay liberation mm -hmm. as opposed to the assimilation. There was still the same thing we have now between assimilation and, and queerness. So I sort of ended up, even though it wasn't called queer, it was more liberation-oriented versus rights-oriented. Tell, tell me about how you all thought about the liberation end at that time, like what the politics of that were. Uh, so I think it was about freedom of expression, freedom to be a freak, freedom to be uh, visible, uh, freedom to flaunt it, uh, which was very appealing after having been told one's whole life to like conform, conform, conform. Um, you know, so there was part of the movement that was like, no, we're just like everybody else, and there's a part of the movement which is like, no, we are just not like everybody else. We are our own thing, and that was much more appealing. So, how did people decide which which side they were on? Like, what what led people to one path or the other? Um, I think if you really did want to conform, you know, if you really just just want to get like married and moved to the suburbs and have kids, all of that right stuff was really important because you couldn't do it. You know, and, and, you know, absolutely people certainly have the right to, to do all that. That was not what I was, was interested in. And, you know, there was a tremendous amount of discrimination and, you know, people couldn't adopt. People, women who had been married and had kids were having their kids taken away from them. So, you know, the right stuff was really important. It just wasn't where where I was emotionally. Were there butch women, butch people on the the rights? And oh, abs yeah, absolutely. So on both yeah, sides. Yeah, yeah. And were there was was each side class diverse? You know, I don't think I paid a lot of attention to class yeah. at the time. Hmm. Um, You know, and, and I would say that overall, uh, every aspect of the movement had issues with race and class. And Boston was a 
very segregated city because they just had the Boston busing riots in uh, 75. So, you know, the movement was almost uh, exclusively white. You know, it, it was probably somewhat class diverse, but definitely very... Um, you know, because Boston is such a university city, it was very student and people who graduated from those universities yeah, dominant. Yeah. So I think it was um, not that, uh, not as class diverse as it um, could have been. And were you ever exposed to uh, African American gay community or politics at any point during that? Only by reading. Yeah. Yeah. What but, did you read? Well, I forget when this bridge called my back came yeah. out, but that was just like classic yeah um, 1983 I think. yes but yeah. so that was a little later or you know but yeah. you know I had been I had read Audre Lorde and yeah. you know so I, I'd read it but it wasn't it wasn't your right and it was life, a little bit no. weird because having come from New York where you know segregated as New York is uh my high school was not as socially segregated, mm-hmm. and so I always had black friends, I had Puerto Rican friends, I had Asian friends. A, a, you know, and, and Boston was much more difficult, and I did have black friends at college. And we, in like in New York, I never thought like, well, what movie theater are we going to, and what restaurant are we going to, is it safe? And in Boston, we really had to think about if we were going into Boston, like what neighborhood, and was it safe? Homophobic violence. Homophobic violence and racial violence. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. You know, there were areas that were fine, like Copley Square was fine, but there were other areas that were just like, we knew not to go there. And you mentioned the Anita Bryant stuff yeah. to, to give us an outline of so, um, what that was about and, in your okay, involvement. Okay, I can remember about it. Um, Anita Bryant was the spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice and was also a real homophobe and very anti-gay and spoke quite a lot about being anti-gay and so uh, people organized orange juice boycotts and demonstrations and there was a boycott to get Florida Orange Juice out of all the gay bars and the gay bars were... um, it wasn't so easy and to get Florida orange juice out of all the campuses and that was not so easy and if we couldn't get it out to boy to not drink it and um, that was that was the organizing was she I I've heard about her but I don't know a lot was she also an elected official or a I business don't think person she, she was a or? business person I don't think okay. she was an elected official she had been I, I want to say she had been like a Miss America or something but that may be completely wrong she she was a prominently known person who was slightly a has-been by that time and was this, the voice of Florida Orange Juice was her gig. Like in advertising. Right, yeah. right. So she, so she was very visible to people, and separate from that, she was doing this whole anti-gay crusade. Yeah. And targeted political boycotts that, that has a history in the 60s around grapes and the UFW right. and Coors beer around right. apartheid in the 80s. And do you, was that a tactic that you had heard about before? It was a tactic or? I'd heard about. What I didn't realize was how long lasting it is. I mean, I still don't drink Florida orange juice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like once you get that into your system, it's really hard. You know, I just gave up orange juice. Yeah. You know, as a kid who grew up drinking uh, Tropicana every day, 
you know, when it came to that point, I was just like, won't do it. And, you know, I still won't, you know, it's like a carton of orange juice hasn't come in my house in, a, you know, 40 years. And what, what, what was your involvement in the organizing? Did, were you at meetings? Were you, you know, I you went to, to demonstrations. I went to dem demonstrations yeah. and yeah. Uh, there wasn't, uh, there, there was a little gay group on our campus, but it was really a social group, not a political group, and it was all men, so it really wasn't. And were you dating in college? Um, I dated a little bit, but not very seriously. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't, uh, um, so I was at MIT. And MIT, when I was there, was about 12% women. Wow. So there wasn't a lot to date. And although I went out into the community, I'm, I've never been the kind of person who picked people up. I've always only dated people I met socially and got to know so what um what was your personality like what, how do you think others I, I was shy and serious and very chubby um and not out I was shy so I wasn't really outgoing um and I have a partner now who I met when I was 24 so we've been together for 34 years so it worked Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so MIT, um, going to occasional demonstrations, being very shy sounds right. a little painful, a little yeah, long was, yeah, yeah. And then what did you do after that? So then I moved uh, back to New York. Mm -hmm. um, what year? So that would have been 81 when mm -hmm. I moved back to New York. Uh, I got a job working at New York City Transit as a... Uh, Urban. I was a civil engineer, urban planning major, mm -hmm. so I got a job working there as a planner. And New York City Transit then and now does not really plan anything. So after a couple years in the planning department, I jumped to the subway scheduling department, which is where I spent most of my career. So this is a white collar job. It was a yeah, in MTA. It you know it, it's sort of as much as office jobs in MTA are white collar. It was a white collar job, um, but it was. Um, one really nice thing about the MTA in New York City Transit is that, um, not that it's so accepting, but if you are a hard worker, people will look past almost anything weird about you. Mm -hmm. So as queer as I was, and as out as I was, and as open about my politics as I was, and the way I dressed, um, as long as I was willing to do more work than anybody else, people were really happy to have me in their office. So. I sort of settled in there. Were you a union member or management? Um, I was a union member to start with, mm -hmm. and at a certain point, they uh, changed the structure and took away our supervisory. Man you, you know, there's like TW union, supervisory union, right? And they took a whole bunch of supervisory union jobs and made them quote unquote management, and I got. Uh, caught up in that so I became management even though I didn't manage anybody at the time um, so they could take us out of the union yeah um, but mostly we worked with people in the operating department so most of the people who we worked with had come up through the ranks most of the people I worked with had come up through the ranks mm -hmm. um, what, what, what is the what was the supervisory union so it was um it still exists joined. it's the um, subway supervisors association mm -hmm. And 
it's like dispatchers, train service supervisors, mm -hmm. and originally the scheduling departments, uh, people came in as conductors or train operators and then became supervisors. Mm -hmm. And then the supervisors moved, a lot of supervisors were in office jobs. So basically what they did is they took the office jobs out of the union. Um, and so people were respectful of you, your gender, to some extent. So, to, you, you know, you people, there were comments and people, right. you know, and things said behind my back and occasionally things said to my face, but mostly um, I would say fairly accepting of my being there. Did you know other gay people? Yeah. In transit? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because you could pick them out a mile away because yeah. it was such a straight environment that, you know, you, you'd walk into the lobby, you'd see them, and it would just be like you would just know. Did, would you all avoid each other? Or no, no, connect, no. We, you or? know, we, we all, you know, there was a little underground. Yeah. So there was a guy there named Sal Licata, um, who wrote, ah, I forget the name of the book he wrote. Um, he was in like the industrial engineering unit and Sal picked me out like the second week I was there and tracked me down and introduced himself. So. Was there ever any, I don't know, mutual support or organizing or anything. No, I, you know, there was indi to... individual support, right. but um, there, there wasn't really any organizing and there never really felt, people didn't socialize yeah. that much. So, you know, you, you came in, you did your job and you, you left yeah. and you had your outside life. So. Right. And, and it sounds like an environment where you all didn't experience super active discrimination that organizing no. against it was necessary. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the, the only, we, you know, we fought to get um, uh, domestic partnership health benefits. So there mm -hmm. was a little organizing around that. Do you remember when that happened? That, uh, that was in it? like the mid-90s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there there you know and that wasn't a lot of active organizing either it was a lot of um uh when we we had these uh employee meetings with the president and people get to stand up and ask questions and we always made sure that all of us asked that question wow so yeah i haven't heard about that that's very yeah. interesting yeah um, okay, so you're uh, living in New York. You get the job at Transit, right? And then, how are you spending your time? So then, I joined work? Women's Pentagon Action, which provided me with um, all the demonstrations I wanted to go to, all the women I wanted to meet, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So um, this is uh, in the early '80s. There's yeah. a big anti-nuclear, anti anti-intervention, anti-intervention. You know, okay. anti-intervention in Central America, right? Um, and the Women's Pentagon Action, Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, although it was all women, was a lot. Uh, people in age ranged in age from their early 20s to their mid 60s. Mm -hmm. So intergenerational. Yeah, and mixed, uh, straight and gay. And really interesting, interesting uh, people in it. So. And were you going to meetings every week? Yeah, weekly meetings yeah. and demonstrations and organizing and thinking about things and really starting to think about. Uh, it was before intersectionality was a word, but the basis of women's Pentagon action was everything is connected. So you know, military violence, patriarchy,
capitalism, you know, that made all the connections. Um, and I, like I said, I met a lot of really interesting people, including my partner there. So, when did you guys meet? Too? So we is met in we met like at the, right at the beginning, and we circled around each other because Donna is um, twenty six years older than I am, and so we circled and circled, and I was attracted, and she was attracted. And we sort of both knew we were attracted, but we also thought, well, you don't want to like mess up a friendship, and it's not going to work, and it's really not going to work, and we really shouldn't do this. And after about a year, it was like, okay, let's just like sleep together and get it out of our system. And here we are. So, um, and and that that was um, then it took us like seven years to move in together because mm -hmm. we each had rent stabilized apartments. Yeah. So it was even then. Um, it was very, it was very complicated to give up two apartments to move in together. Yeah. So women's Pentagon action um, was uh, was it a civil disobedience group? So they did civil disobedience, but they also did a lot of what we would now call direct action mm -hmm. of uh, demonstrating and also showing up at other people's demonstrations with our own signs and and things. How big was the group? Maybe. You know, I would say there were between 30 and 50 people who came to organizing meetings and we could get anywhere from three to 500 people at a demonstration. So. Three to 500. And were there internal, significant internal debates? There were significant internal debates like every other organization. Um, we were predominantly not exclusively white. Uh, we were not a separatist group, but we were a women-only group, so, uh, and our actions were supposed to be women-only, so it was really awkward when men showed up at them, particularly the male partners of women in the group, that was an issue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of discussion about... Um, you know, I think what you have in every group about how much do you try to change the existing system versus how much do you have to start from a complete, you know, revolution versus change, mm -hmm. and for which there is never any good answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there was a lot of discussion about it, and uh, uh, there were a number of artists and writers in the group. Uh, so Grace Paley, the poet, was in the group. Oh wow. Um, and Vera Williams, who's a children's author, was in the group. And then there were some young people. So Laura Flanders, the writer. The current Laura Flanders. The current Laura yes. Flanders was in the group. Um, so the they radio were, talk right, show host. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know she yeah, had that so background. She, yeah, so she had that background. Yeah. So it was a, there were quite a few really good thinking uh, people there. And how many uh, people would you say sort of came out of the new left, the anti-capitalist movement, the sort of the left, and how many people had a different I think it was generational. So yeah. I think the older women there came out of the anti-war movement, and they had gone through the, like, women are supposed to just, like, uh, operate the mimeograph machine and make coffee and sleep with us. And they were like, you know, we're, we're not doing that. 
and the younger women came out of either campus or there were a lot of Barnard students like Laura Flanders mm -hmm. was a student at Barnard at the time there was a whole little cadre of them um, some of them came out of the um, anti-apartheid movement or brought that I shouldn't say they came out of it they brought that with them mm -hmm. um, and a lot of anti-intervention in Central America stuff so being the trans oral history project, yes. I want to ask some about dynamics around trans sure. people. So, and uh, you know, I, in the early 70s, there were uh, quite a few trans women involved in feminist organizing. Yeah. And in the late 70s, there was this very acute and aggressive term Raymond, right, yeah. against trans women. Yeah. And, and some of the sort of language and experience of the anti-war feminist movement included assertions about sort of women's biological nature being linked to peace or in yeah. a way that was quite turned against, weaponized against yeah, trans women. Yeah, and I, um, that was not so much an issue in our group. Mm -hmm. We did not have trans women active in the group uh, and they probably would, for good reason, uh, mm -hmm. probably would not have been comfortable there. Um, I don't know whether they would have been viewed as women or not. They probably would not have been. Do you um, remember any exposure to the trans debates in feminism at the time? Um, you know, because Women's Pentagon Action was not, it was feminist, but it wasn't... Yeah. Um, it was orienting more towards right. the Right, and there wasn't sort of active movement. turfiness the right. way there is now. Um, yeah. So it really, you know, it was more, what I would say was more of an issue in the group and what we talked about was internalized homophobia. Oh, and whether as a mix of lesbians and straight women, did the lesbians feel like they had to play to not push their lesbianism in order to keep peace and order in the group. Um, so there was really no trans issue discussions that I can remember. Mm -hmm. um, so some, what would pushing your lesbianism in the group have looked like or what would... So I, you know I think because we were a women's group and yeah. not a lesbian group, although we marched in the gay pride parade, um, what would it have looked like? I think it would have been bring, you know, we our signs, if we brought signs, were more women and not and didn't have the words lesbian in it because that would have created a some sort of split wow. so um, you know visibly you know we were there but um, and we didn't you know it was just it was sort of that it because it wasn't a lesbian group the le lesbian issues weren't uh, as prominent so how long did you organize with Women's Pentagon? Well, maybe that was like three years, but it was three very intense yeah. years, including going up to, there was a uh, women's peace camp in upstate New York, Seneca Falls, in Seneca. So we went up, spent a week up at the Seneca Women's Peace Encampment. How long was that there? That was there for, it was active for one whole summer, I want to say 83. Uh, and then it continued for a little while after that, but it was a real org organizing thing with uh, the women from Greenham Commons, England, and it was a mm -hmm. part of a women's peace thing at the time. That was very. And is, is there a 
like nuclear weapons facility there or a uh, American, military American, base? In, in Greenham, there was an American military right. base. In Seneca, there was a military base also. And the historic Seneca Falls right. feminist yeah. convention. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I went to a camp like that in Scotland at, in the 90s. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that... Um, and are outside of political work and your job, did yeah. you have other things going on? No. <laughs> Just focusing on <laughs> Just the politics. Just focus, you know, job and politics, mostly. Yeah. yeah. And how did you, um, what were, were your own politics? How, was it generally the same as the rest of the group or were they being shaped in other ways as well? So, you know, I was struggling you know, I preferred to be in queerer groups, and I don't, you know, and at the time, queer wasn't really as, but I preferred gay mixed groups to women's mixed groups. Um, and, but I liked the peace politics and the nonviolence politics and non-sectarian politics of women's mm -hmm. Pentagon action a lot, and. There weren't like that many groups in New York to pick and choose from, mm -hmm. so um, you know my my dream group has never really existed, uh, and and even now you know I would prefer a queerer group than than I mean Rise and Resistance is queer but it's not queer queer. And there are a lot of straight people in it, which is fine, but it doesn't have the um, queer liberation dynamic or trans liberation dynamic to it that I would really like to see. Yeah. And to the best of my knowledge, that still doesn't exist in New York. So, if so, you know of one, let me know. <laughs> so what came after Women's Pentagon? So after that yeah. came, came after uh, a quick hybrid into GLAD and then into ACT UP. Mm -hmm. um, so what was GLAD like and what year is this? So this is like 85, okay. 86. And um, I got pulled into GLAD. GLAD had a bunch of gay activist alliance people uh, who reformed around the AIDS crisis and around the homophobia and anti-gay backlash um, from AIDS. And they started out doing some street activism, but they had a really bad management, not management structure, organizational structure with like a steering committee that was self-appointed and only their friends, and then they wanted other people to do the work, and there was a, like an action committee that did a lot of the action work, and that's who I worked with, but it wasn't really, com it, it, it wasn't a good activist model. Mm -hmm. um, and that group also had a lot of writers in it. A lot of what? Writers in it. So Jewel Gomez was a part of it, Daryl Yates Rist, Marsha Paley, uh, Vito Russo. Um, so it had some really good people in it, but the structure never gelled. So I was always had one foot in and one foot out the door. Mm -hmm. So when ACT UP, formed, I was very happy to jump ship into ACT UP. So tell me about your first exposure to ACT UP. So my first exposure was being asked by the War Resisters League to go do a civil disobedience training for their first action, which was like their, maybe the second meeting of the group. And so I went and I 
talked to the 20 people who were thinking about getting arrested and explained it to them and went to the demonstration and... What was that, that demonstration? So the demonstration was at Wall Street. It was mm -hmm. in front of, uh, I think it was Trinity Church, and 20 people just sat down in the street and got arrested. And it was actually the only active demonstration that was orchestrated with the police where they gave like a, the police a list of names of people who were going to get arrested. It was before ACTUP got wild. Um, because they really, they had just formed and they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, and then I, I just stayed and um, brought with me uh, my organizing skills from other things which they really needed because not that many people involved at the beginning of ACT UP knew how to, what was legal, what wasn't legal, how to do a demo, what you have to tell the police, what you don't have to tell the police, what you need a permit for, what you don't need a permit for. Um, so very concrete very concrete yeah, yeah so so Protest I knew all that skills. from my experience yeah. and I uh, brought that with me so uh, how many other people in the group had previous organizing movement work in the uh, way that you about did? half of the women and about 120th of the men yeah <laughs> and what movements did people come out of so uh, you know I would say sort of the general LGBT movement and some anti-war people, um, a few people who had been in GMHC but were very upset doing service provision because they wanted to be out on the street. Um, and then there were, um, before ACT UP there was a group uh, that coexisted with us called the PWA Collective. Mm -hmm. And the guys from the PWA collective had organ, you know, had had a lot of skills. Uh, and what were the demographics of ACT UP in those? So it was eighty-seven. So it was skewed young. Yeah. Um, it was skewed male. Um, it was uh, not as demographically diverse as. New York is, but it was not all white either. Um, so there were um, uh, some uh, people of color, African American, Latino, Asian American, Pacific Islander, um, not as widespread as in New York City as a whole, but not as white as most groups in New York tend to be. Um, and I would say that the bigger split in the group was between people who were HIV positive and people who were not, or people who knew their status and people who didn't, or people who were sick and people who were not. And what was that dynamic like? Well, you know, I think... Uh, you always seated the Florida people who self-identified as people with AIDS. And if there was a discussion about what needed to be done, you seated the discussion to them so that they could speak. Um, and they, their needs and issues and voices had priority over everybody else's. What are some of the actions that you that stand out for you during the 80s, the, the, those years you were? Um, uh, we did 
uh, Stop the Church, which was in St. Patrick's, which was a difficult but really good action. Uh, lots of anti-Reagan stuff. Uh, going to the Center for Disease Control, going to the National Institute of Health, going um, when uh, Bush one was president, we went to Kennebunkport while he was on summer vacation, which really upset him. But that was a really good demonstration, just because it made him confront the issue. Um, there were uh, a lot of very good, very large. I mean, but not very large by like women's march move standards, but large by ACT UP standards, which was like a thousand people. What were relationships with other movements like at the time? Um, you know, ACT UP was not uh, used to working in coalition except with some of the other uh, people with AIDS groups. So, um, and also a number of groups sort of came out of ACT UP and then worked in coalition with us. So like Housing Works started out as a working group within ACT UP, so we always worked in coalition with Housing Works once they split off. We worked with uh, People with AIDS Coalition. We did not work a lot with GMHC um, because uh, they were always accusing us of screwing up their, potentially screwing up their funding. So there was a, there was a, a, a divide there. Um, there were not, in the early, in the late 80s, early 90s, there weren't a lot of AIDS service groups the way there, those sort of burgeoned in the 90s. So it wasn't like there were a lot of other groups to um, affiliate with. But mostly we, we did our own things and invited people to join us, but we didn't do a lot of coalition building. And was your relationship to gender in the group, so your I, a butch gay woman at this at time. At that time, yeah. yeah. And um, was that a common experience in the group, or did people relate to that at all? People, or? yeah, people were fine yeah. with that. Um, yeah. There were, there were never a lot of women in ACT UP, yeah. and um, almost all of them were lesbians, and sort of split between butch and not butch. But there was no, it, it was. It was fine. Yeah, there. You know, I felt listened to, and uh, I, I didn't feel anybody had any um, any issues as, with with it. Um, surprisingly, I don't know if I should say surprisingly, an act up. At that point, there were also um, there was very little connection to the trans community, which there really should have been in retrospect. Mm. Um, but. Um, there really was not uh, an, an active connection between ACT UP and, the, and trans women. Do you have any sense of why that might have been? You know, I think because early in the crisis, it, people could have come into the group if they were comfortable, but the, the organizing... I mean, it was a survival issue for people, and once people got sick, they just, you know, once you, to... It, it took, uh, you either had to have a really good 
support network to get sick and to do ACT UP, or you had to, it took a particular kind of person to, to do that. And uh, I don't think the support would have been there for trans women necessarily who would because I mean, it, be, it was a very yeah. Isolation. I mean, it was a very particular kind of uh, gay man with AIDS who came to act up, yeah, of anger and you know. And I I used to say that it was because it was the first time their gay white male well their, that their white male privilege wasn't working for them and they were just furious and they had never faced that kind of powerlessness before. And I think for other people, they'd faced plenty of, you know, of that lack of privilege, and so it didn't come as much of a shock, and so they didn't have the same anger. I don't know if that's a good analysis or not, but you know, the, the type of people who came in to ACT UP were really a very small subset of people with HIV. And what were some of the characteristics that were most common in this subset? Well, I would say, like I said, anger. Uh, and an intention to try to make the system work for them. Um, and some of those people were able to make connections to other people and say, okay, it's not just me that I have to worry about. You know, whatever we get, we have to make sure it gets to everybody with HIV and AIDS. But, you know, most people were in, came there because they wanted the information, they wanted the drugs, they wanted to survive, and they were furious that this was happening to them. Do you have a sense of what their lives were like before uh, to becoming HIV positive or no, the mixed. HIV crisis? I mean, you know, there, yeah. there were there were a few, you know, wealthy connected guys, but I think a lot of them were just guys who'd been having a good time, and and all of a sudden this thing happened to them out of nowhere, and they were young, and this wasn't supposed to happen, and they were unprepared for it, and. You, you, and they were in shock, yeah. you know. And, and so for them, it was like being caught up in a war, mm -hmm. and they were going to fight. Yeah. Yeah. So there have been a lot of accounts. I mean, we we started off uh, before starting the recorder mm -hmm. talking about the ACT UP yeah. Oral History Archive um, about just the incredible range of actions and mm -hmm. vibrancy and dynamism of the movement. Um, do you, what are some of the things that really touched you most deeply and excited you most about being an act up? I think one was, so I couldn't walk away from it. I mean, I really couldn't walk away from it. And I knew too many people there who were HIV positive. And I was, you know, particularly during the Reagan era, I mean, which we were just like, the civil rights issues, um, including, you know, tremendous homophobia, talk about locking people up, talk about taking away the rights of people who are HIV positive. Um, so for me, the sort of civil rights issues um, and the solidarity uh, were really, really important. Um, 
you all care about each other. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they're. Uh, you know, it felt like being being in a war zone. You know, and it was a war zone that no one else saw. You know, we saw it, but if you weren't in it. You know, no one. You know, and that was like one of the most infuriating things about being in New York, and why we did such disruptive actions, was because we were in this, in this war, and no one gave a fuck. You know, people just did not care about it at all, unless they were in it. Um, and it was, you know, it was just infuriating. Um, you know, you'd be at a demonstration, and someone would walk by and say, "I hope you all die of AIDS." So. so you were in the group from 87 to 95? Yeah, 94, so. 95. Um, did the kind of actions you all do change over that arc? You, you know, towards the... Uh, they changed a little bit, but not that much. You know, I think what you know, really changed things was starting to get better drugs. Um, so there was a point where people stopped dying, or at least they stopped dying really quickly. And that was right at the end? That was like, 90, you know, for when I was involved, it was like 94, 95. Now, ACT right. UP has con continued. Right, right. Um, so how did but that I, change? I was, I was, well, because it felt like, Things had shifted to where the work that, you know, even though we had always said, you know, drugs into bodies, drugs into bodies, drugs into bodies, things were really changing. And it was clear that uh, medications were working and they were getting distributed and they were, people had much more access to them and that there was not the need for sort of sounding the alarm and haranguing people at the same level that it needed to shift. Mm -hmm. um, so people started getting access to medications, right, living longer. Right, and that changed the group because that was what pe you know people stopped going, going to meetings because they'd gotten their meds, and so the group sort of really dwindled down, and um, I needed to take a break as well. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, it was like I just lost my connection to the group. And there were also a number of other groups that had spun off by that point. And so I felt like the circle of people who I'd really worked with was sort of dissipating. So, so how, how big were the meetings you were at, like at their peak in terms of active so, people? You know, 500 people. Mm -hmm. You know, so big that we couldn't fit in the center. So that was like 300 people could probably pack into a room at the center. Um, then we moved to Cooper Union, which was not a great place to meet, but it was larger. Um, and we, we probably were peaking out at it like 500 people once a week. And then as it dwindled? It got down that? to like 75 people sitting. And it was just, but it was not, it didn't have the same feel to it. And it was also... Um, I don't want to say it started to be special interest, but it was, it, you know, the people who were left were not doing the same sort of stuff that I was interested in. So. How so? They were more into like alternative and holistic, and um, uh, they were still doing a lot of needle exchange stuff and housing stuff. 
and I just felt like I need to take a break. Yeah. So I mean, it was it it was it was just it it was much more diffuse, um, and much less central uh, around cent- a central issue. Mm-hmm. So. And do you have a sense of who left versus who stayed in the kind of early and mid nineties? So, I mean, first of all, we in the like ninety one, ninety two, ninety three we lost a tremendous number of people because people were dying. And so that was our grief. The grief was really hard to deal with. Um, And then when, like I said, I don't want to say it was like all of a sudden, but you would notice that like a week went by and then two weeks went by and then, you know, and we weren't announcing deaths the same way. And so it was really noticeable when 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 things changed. Um, so I think of the big wave of heart and protease inhibitors as being like ninety five, ninety six. But you're but yeah, there were but, some drugs available but, early. Right, yeah, and, and you could really see the the differences yeah. in, in how people survived on them. How was um, Clinton's presidential campaign and election? How did that, how did you all engage that and how did it affect the work? So we had a big thing called Campaign 92. That was when we went down to Kennebunkport because we were, the sole function of a summer campaign was to get them to talk about AIDS during the debates. Right. If you can believe right. that one would spend your entire summer <laughs> trying to convince people to say the word AIDS at a debate. But even in 92, it was not seen as a national enough issue to have that discussion and so every time any of the candidates came to town during the spring for primaries we harangued them and we protested their fundraisers and then um, Clinton kept coming to New York because the money was in New York so every time Clinton came to New York we would go to a fundraiser uh, or stand outside the fundraiser, and then Bush didn't come to New York, so we went to Kennebunkport, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Bush family has a compound in Kennebunkport, and we marched up to the compound and demanded it. And they actually, in the long run, did very briefly talk about AIDS during the debate. So, and Clinton ended up making some promises about. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, compared to four years of Bush and eight years of Reagan, Clinton was a much better uh, president, certainly still anti-gay, not anti-gay, but not pro-gay, you know, and not speaking out um, the way he should have, and not being sex positive, you know, I mean, when you talk about, like, what really should have been done. You know, you needed to be sex positive, you needed to be pro-gay, you needed to be drugs into bodies, you know, you needed to talk about condoms, you needed, you know, it's like the whole, you know, but it was still better than just say no, you know. And I've heard that some people from ACT UP went to work for the federal government and some things after Clinton's election. So, you know, the... It was. It's natural for people to get to take jobs in the movement. Of course. And they have to support themselves. Right. So, yeah. I, 
you know, as long as they don't switch sides, yeah. you know, I really can't blame people for 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 taking jobs in the in the movement. Um, the big issue in ACT UP came when our treatment and data committee split off t to form the treatment action group as its own organization, and then they took money from Burroughs Welcome. Um, you know, and and taking money from a uh, the makers of AZT seemed like really problematic and a conflict of interest. But what year was that that they split off uh, the tech for? Yeah. I, it, Later than '92, but not yeah. that much later. Yeah, but it, that was very problematic. Do you remember the for the for the? It was very problematic about... for the for the group. It wasn't so much arguments; it was just like it happened. Yeah, and some people tried to do both, but it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you mentioned syringe exchanges and housing works, yeah. and so where where how did where were poor people in this mix? Um, so, you know, there were yeah. there were poor people in ACT UP, and, yeah. and if you know, if you didn't start out poor, uh, HIV will make you poor. Um, and we had a small group of people. You know, I would say it was assumed, not really talked about, that a vast majority of people got uh, seroconverted due to sex, but some through uh, drug use. Um, there were, you know, uh, IV drug users in general are not the easiest group of people to organize, nor would one expect them to be organizing. Um, there was a, a, a group in ACT UP that uh, did needle exchange and eventually founded some sort of uh, not-for-profit needle exchangey things, um, which is really good. Um, and it sort of got needle exchange and the concept of needle exchange out there. Um, same thing, uh, you know, you had people with HIV who became homeless because they lost their jobs and they lost their apartments, and then you had people who were already homeless who zero-converted. Um, I would say the people in ACT UP more started with the sort of Bailey House, um, we need housing for people with AIDS, rather than there are homeless people who are also HIV positive who need assistance. Um, housing Works deals with both. Mm -hmm. um, and they started out as a working group within ACT UP. But in order to really do it, you have to become a not-for-profit and get your act together. And, and so that's what they did. So, so the... On the one hand, these service groups are spinning off, and the other hand, right. TAG is spinning off. Right, and what's left, in, and there's no center left. Right. And how did people, was, was it acrimonious between these three groups? No, no, I think, I think, you know, people felt like in order to, you know, most activist groups don't last for seven years. Right. Most activist groups last for two or three years, if you're lucky. So yeah. they don't have to go through all of this morphing yeah. um, that, that ACT UP did, nor do like most of their members die during the process of creating the group. Mm -hmm. So there was also that issue. Um, you know, I think ACT UP, I don't want to say it outlived its function because it still exists, but 
it um, it outlived its original form. Yeah. How so? And, and because you can't sustain that kind of level of activi activism for forever, particularly while people are dying, and because um, AIDS, although it's a single issue in many ways, it's not a single issue, and so you did need, um, you know, drugs into bodies, you needed needle exchange, you needed housing, you needed education, you needed education for kids, you, you know, it's like, you needed, uh, you, you needed all of those things, and it just stretched the group very thin, you know, once it be just, it stopped just being drugs into bodies. Yeah. So in 95, you needed a break. Yeah. You had you, were you like going to things every day during the years you were an act up? So or when I was an act up, I had an agreement with Donna, my partner, that no more than two meetings a week. Okay. Um, but I could go to as many actions as I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, uh, even though we had a sense of immediacy, because so little was happening, it wasn't like there was multiple actions every week. But we did organize both for several large actions during the course of a year and smaller actions. Mm -hmm. So I went to almost all the actions just because that's what you do when you're in a group. So. What, uh, what was your favorite one? So I really liked anything that had to do with Wall Street, mm -hmm. just because of AIDS profiteering, and so we did a couple of different actions down on Wall Street. So those were targeting drug companies, that right? Yeah, we're profiteering high prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it just it was an easy way to connect all the dots, and it's very photogenic. Yeah. Uh, how were there a lot of actions targeting drug companies they were, on yeah, Wall Street? But the, you know, not so many on Wall Street. We did one out at Pfizer in um, New Jersey. Was it Pfizer? Kaufman LaRoche? I forget which one it was. It was in New Jersey. And uh, it was a great action because we totally blockaded their plant, but then we were arrested in New Jersey, which was not much fun. <laughs> Being, we understood getting arrested in New York or Washington better. Yeah. But... Uh, how, uh, do you know how many times you were arrested? No, 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 I'm, I'm going to say at least 50. Wow. Oh, but it was not, you know, over the course of seven years. Yeah. And did, um, did, were the arrests ever really consequential for people's lives? Did people, I don't know, go to jail for... No, I mean, they were disruptive. Yeah. Um, and we got put through the system a couple of times. Yeah. But... Never, you know, a little bit of community service here and there, but yeah. not. I mean, one of the good things about working for New York City Transit was that they were very tolerant of my arrests, and we have really good um, time off. So I yeah. got like four weeks of vacation a year. So you'd use plus them in compensatory jail. overtime. So yeah. I'd use them in. I'd use them for de demonstrating. That's great. So I was always taking days off to demonstrate. So what did you do after? small things, nothing, I didn't do a lot of active, organ a little bit of stuff with the War Resisters League still, because I kept my connections to people in the uh, peace movement. Um, after September 11th, you know, more against the war in Iraq, and but not 
um, not heavy heavy duty because I couldn't find a group I could tolerate working with. Um, what were your frustrations with the groups? You oh, straight male left sectarians. Yeah. Um, and also sort of very um, uninteresting and repetitive demonstrations that didn't feel like they were doing any good or going anywhere or even direct at the target you should be. So it was very frustrating. Yeah. And when did your gender identity start shifting? So in 89, I pretty much understood that I was trans mm -hmm. um, and I tried to talk to my therapist at the time about it um, who tried to talk me out of it and I ended up leaving therapists and finding another therapist who I tried to talk to about it who also tried to talk me out of it and at that time I decided that I was coping well enough as it was that I would not transition. So this is like 89 and 90. So it was very, there was not, there weren't a lot of resources out there. What had been your exposure to trans people and trans men at, up to this point, or um, gender non-conforming people? I knew uh, two people who had transitioned female to male, and I knew a I'd done some reading there, but there was really very little going, you know, I mean, it was pre-internet for one thing, so. Did you know them in political scenes or in like the gay women's scene? I knew where? them, I knew one from uh, ACT UP mm -hmm. and one from sort of prior queer stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and. So when I talked to my therapist, I said, listen, I know I'm really a boy. And she was like, no, you're a tomboy. And I was like, no, you know, I'm really a boy. And she was like, no, no, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're butch and you're doing so well and you have a relationship and you have a job and you're coping and blah, blah, blah. You know, transitioning is really... Uh, you know, you're going to have to give up everything. And so I didn't talk to my partner about it. And so I sort of put it to sleep until about five years ago. Wow. So from 89 to 2012, right, you yeah. just knew it deep down and just didn't, tried not to think about right, it. Right, and tried not to deal with it. Wow and sort of watched everything else change and I sort of felt like I'd made my, you know, I'd made my peace with it. And I made my peace with it by also telling myself, which is probably true at the time, that most people who are trans don't transition. And the world's changed a lot during that time. Yes, exactly, yeah, exactly. What was that right. like to see the sort of explosion and development of trans movement and trans masculine communities right. and so envy mm -hmm. um, and I remember I was at one dyke march and there was this person there who I didn't rec I didn't know 
but I could tell that they'd had top surgery. And I just remember just feeling this wave of envy, just like, and just thinking, I'm never gonna do that. Cause there's no, there's no way, you know, at this point I'm like still with the same partner, different therapist, still with the same partner. And, um, you know, then there, the, so I was one day, you know, in 2011 or 2012, I'm sitting in my therapist's office and we're talking and she said something that gendered me female and I just was like, I'm not a girl. It's just like, you just got, you have to, and she's like, I know you're always uncomfortable when I say, I was like, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable when you say, it's like, I am not a girl. Can we just like stop the charade right now? And then we started to talk and then I realized that I didn't know what kind of transition I wanted to have, um, but that I couldn't just go on pretending that I'd resolved it or that, um, or that things were okay the way they were. Things were definitely not okay the way they were and I really needed to let my transness out of the box and see what happened. So I talked to my partner who totally flipped out because I basically told her the truth, which meant I'd been hiding it from her since 1989, which didn't go over really well. Um, and that, um, and it was also freaked her out because I was honest that I didn't know where I was going with it. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted to do a binary transition or what kind of transition I wanted to do or, and you know, what I did, but I just had to let it out. And so that was really hard. Um, and you know, we have struggled together a lot about negotiating name change. You know, so I changed my name legally. I changed my name at, when I was still working. I went through that with everybody. Um, I had top surgery, which was really important to me. Um, you know, I pretty much dress the way I've always dressed, but now I do it without, you know, I, I can um, own it a little more. And somewhere sitting at home is a box of uh, androgel testosterone that I haven't opened yet. And I still don't know whether I'm gonna open it or not, but it's there and it hasn't expired yet. Um, and it's an option, so. When did you have top surgery? So I had top surgery in December 2014. Mm -hmm. And what was the dynamic with your partner like? So, you, you know, the one, even claiming to be trans, I did not want to go through what I call transition one, two, three, which is testosterone for a year, name change, top surgery, and that I did not see myself as a straight white guy. Um, and that I wanted to hold on to my queerness and I wasn't really sure how to balance the, since I'm attracted to women, the queerness with the transness, with the not wanting to have a woman's body, um, but 
and still feeling more boy than man necessarily um, and not feeling like I wanted to do, um, you know, that, that owning my gender is different than a sex change or, you know, which, and most people it's like when you tell them you're trans, they just assume you're going to do a very straight binary. And that was not necessarily what I wanted, and I didn't really identify with the term genderqueer because I really experienced the masculine end of the, you know, so I, transmasculine seems like a better fit than genderqueer for me. I like non-binary, so I'll also use non-binary. Um, but so I, I didn't, you know, what I decided was that I would just start doing what I'm doing and do what felt comfortable and reject what doesn't feel comfortable. Um, top surgery is a little hard because once you do it, there's really no going back easily. Um, but I also was pretty sure that top surgery was going to be a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. It felt right. It felt, it felt totally right. And it was sort of like getting back my pre-puberty body, mm -hmm. which was really nice. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like getting back my boy body. So I never had any doubts after the surgery about whether or not I'd done the right thing. Mm -hmm. But my partner was really freaked out because... Um, for you know, it, it's a big thing to have your partner start shifting gears publicly, um, and I'm not a very private person in that. She knew that I would be. It, it, she act so. One of the first things that happened after I told her about this was she was like, "Is it okay with you if I talk to other people about this?" And I was like, "Fine." I was like, "I don't care if you out me to the whole world." If you need to talk to people, talk to people. Which was great for her, but it became confusing for me because she talked to people before I did. And so no one knew like what pronouns to use for me or whether I was really, what kind of transition I was doing. or So it got a little complicated. It's still complicated for people. Mm -hmm. So I think of 20-something um, trans people these days. Right. There have been a lot of non-binary identities. Right. And people your age, non-binary identities being less common. Yeah. Uh, certainly using the word, for example, right. is a lot less common. Yeah. How do you sort of, how do you think of yourself with respect to this kind of community of non-binary identifying and the you, experimentation with language and non-traditional transitions? Yeah. And... Yeah, so, um, I think that... Most people of my generation who transition, transition binary. Um, or they don't transition at all. And I think there are some people, so there's a group called Trans Men Over 40 on Facebook that is fairly large. And there are a number of people in there who are, uh, who fall somewhere in, in the middle between not transitioning and fully transitioning and who um, are sort of in the same category as I am. So there are some. Um, I think it's unusual. I think people don't talk about it. Um, I was sort of surprised because it turned out that I have two friends who I'm pretty good friends with who are in almost the exact same place that I am but won't talk to anybody about it. You know, and they're both people who don't go by female names and they're both people who bind. Um, and let people 
assume that they're butch lesbians, but really feel uh, quite far out on the transmasculine spectrum, and in some cases further than me. But they um, don't want to deal with having to talk to everybody about it. What do you think is challenging for folks of your generation to do like you have well, I think pursuing a non-binary path? Well, I think saying that you're trans at all, there are a lot of people who think that you're a traitor to womanhood mm-hmm. and a traitor to lesbians and that, um, you know, somehow that you're buying into some kind of weird male privilege. Um, by transitioning and that you're sort of jumping ship. And I have lost one good friend over that. Um, but another form of turfism. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, they're yeah, they're they're uh, they're sort of unaffiliated turfs. Right. But that's sort of where they're coming from. Um you know, I think the challenge for most people is that what, you know, what's changed, so much has changed for me internally, and I'm so much more comfortable with myself and more talkative and uh, physically more comfortable. And they see that, and so that they, like, that's the only, like, my partner, who was really not with the program for a while is like I you know I keep seeing how much more comfortable you are and how much easier you are to live with and how much more pleasant you are you know she's like not that you were that bad before but that she can see all the you know the positive changes and the positive changes have in me have really helped her deal with uh, what we call my so-called transition or my transition um, and my so-called so-called transition, transition. <laughs> um, she, she was most upset before the surgery about top my having top surgery but the next week she was like well actually after all the drains and everything came out so maybe it was a couple weeks later she was like I have to tell you that it looks really natural wow how interesting yeah she was like yeah she was like it really you really look like you and I can see that you really look like you and it's okay it's going to be okay which was like, thank God. You know, because she sort of had one foot out the door during the whole negotiation of it, and it took a a while for her to uh, you know, her fear was that she was going to lose me, and she will now say that she got more of me, which is is good. It's beautiful. Um, Yeah. And she knows I have the testosterone sitting in the drawer, and she's like, you do whatever you want. Don't, you know, don't pin it on me that you're not using it. And I'm like, okay. It's my decision. Yeah. Um, What's it like trying to think about whether to use the testosterone? Well, you know, there's a part of me that would like to use it just so I can say I'm on T because it's a lot gives you a lot more credibility as a someone who's transgender to be on hormones than not. Credibility with who? Oh with other trans people. You know, so I know a, so I feel like even if 
as a non, someone who identifies as non-binary, you have sort of more trans street cred if you're on testosterone, I think, than if you're not, huh. which is a crappy reason to go on it, and I talk myself out of it. You know, I, I would yeah. say that, like, at least once a week I go through the, like, should I, shouldn't I, do I want to do this, do I not want to do this, what do I want to get out of it, what don't, you know. And, you know, my dysphoria is so much less than it used to be between changing my name, change, uh, I use they pronouns, changing my pronouns, and having top surgery, that I don't necessarily feel like I need hormones for dysphoria. Um, I would really like the voice change. Mm -hmm. I'd really like a little bit of the facial shift. Um, uh, I'm not so sure that it, I'm not keen, I feel like chemically, my chemical hormonal balance is okay internally the way I feel. So I don't feel like I need testosterone to internally feel like myself, um, which would be probably the best reason to go on it. Um, and maybe that's because I'm in menopause and I have like no estrogen left in my system probably. How long have you been in menopause? That's a good question. So I had, before I reclaimed transness, I had a hysterectomy because I had um, fibroids. Mm -hmm. And that should have been a hint to me how much better I felt as soon as my uterus was gone <laughs> and my period stopped because that was like another form of like horrible dysphoria. But I didn't, what allow myself that? oh that would have been like uh, 2007 okay so that should have been an indication but it really wasn't um, but I you know inter my internal feeling for my gender right now is very comfortable um, and part of me doesn't want to muck it up by throwing I'm a person who doesn't like to take drugs so um, there's one part of me that would really like to try testosterone just to see what it feels like and see if I feel more comfortable or less comfortable. So I, so I have it. You know, so obviously I wanted to have it so I could try it, but I haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Uh, so going back to activism uh -huh. a little bit, so um, what are broadly the groups or projects that you've gone to more than one meeting since leaving so, ACT UP? Okay. So War Resisters League local, yeah. various and sundry little groups that sort of formed and that didn't stick. Mm -hmm. um, and in November, I started working with Rise and Resist. Tell me about that. Um, which was interesting for me because one of my decisions about working with them was that I was going to be out uh, as trans mm -hmm. from from the get-go there. So who are Rise and Resist? So Rise and Resist, there it was formed by, or called for by a handful of men who had worked with either Treatment Action Group or ACT UP New York. Um, uh, and they called it uh, sort of as a queer group in response to Trump's election, although it, um, 
is much more mixed now than it than just queer. Um, and uh, I got the call because people knew me from ACT UP and they wanted some act, people with activist backgrounds there. And I sort of just got sucked up into it. Um, but I, uh, I told Anna when I went that I am going to insist on they pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be uh, open as both queer and trans and let people if they think that those two things conflict, well, let's just let them figure it out. And Donna is also in it, which makes it harder because uh, since we're a couple, people naturally assume that we're a lesbian-identified couple. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've done a lot of they explaining to people because the, the average age there are not people who've had a lot of experience with people who use the, the they, they as singular. So... But um, it, we've done a lot of uh, anti-Trump demonstrations and other, um, you know, basically things around Trump or Republican agenda. Uh, so, and it's worked out. How has it been that they explaining? And uh, you know, so for a long, not for a long time. Uh, so after I came out, I said that I was pronoun challenged. So I'd go to these meetings and people would sit in a circle and go around with their name and pronouns. And I don't want to use she, but I, and I don't use he in my regular life. And I hadn't been really using they either. So I just say like, I'm just pronoun challenged or pronoun fuck, just call me Jamie and skip the pronouns, you know, which is... You know, you would think that almost nothing is more awkward than using they, but not using pronouns at all is even more awkward. Um, so I tolerated, you know, because most people don't use your pronouns in your presence. They mm -hmm. use them when they're, you're not there. I told Donna, like, just use whatever pronouns you want, and I'm not there. I'm not going to object to it. You know, because she had already told everybody in the world what I was doing, and everybody that she knows knows I had top surgery and changed my name and all this. So, it, it, um, but I really didn't want to be in a political group where I'm meeting all new people, as well as some people who've known me for a long time, and have them use she. Yeah. So I really made a, a decision to use they, which. You know, I'm, there's some special snowflakeism to it, but I'm uh, more comfortable with it now than I was like three or four years ago. Yeah. And you know, I really want to move away from she and have people stop using she. But the I'm not I'm not really a he either. And so I just want people to gender me as me. Which is not so easy, and it's certainly almost impossible uh, it, uh, with strangers. So, could you imagine that opening up more in the future? Uh, so this gets back to the testosterone. I think without testosterone and being read as gender non-conforming, as opposed to being gendered as male, though it, I get a decent 
male gendering, um, a decent amount of that. Um, you know, I, I wish that it was as easy to wear male pronouns as it is to wear quote unquote male genes. Hmm. You know, um, but it's not, and in this society, yeah. it's really not. And so it feels, uh, it doesn't feel right for me to ask people to use he pronouns uh, for me, both because I don't necessarily feel that he is the best option, and because again, I'm not on testosterone and I'm not visually moving more towards he no ones. Visual look should not have to match one's pronouns 100%, but it's like, do I want to, how much of my energy do I want to put into correcting people's pronouns for me, and how much energy do I want to put into living my life? Mm -hmm. So, um, I feel like how a lot of early 20 somethings have dealt with that is to just hang out in a gender queer centered community, right? Yeah. To, like, form a subculture where non-conventional pronouns are intelligible to everyone and to, like, not deal with the Right, but that world. doesn't work in real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and eventually it will. You know, but, you know, it's like every year I think they gets a little bit more circulation and will eventually become something people stop thinking about. Um, but I was actually, I was, there was a little demonstration this morning uptown at the Indonesian mission about the 140 men in Jakarta who had been arrested in a spa. And so I was talking with one of the guys there who's my age, a uh, gay man. And he was like, oh, I know you use they, but it just, it's hard for it to roll off my tongue. And I said, Jay, that's his name. I said, Jay, do you want to be part of the problem or part of the solution? <laughs> well like, said. He was like, I know, I know. <laughs> I was like, you got it, you know. Yeah. I said, you know, th there was a point where people used thee and thou, and now we use, we're using they, and you have to roll with it. Yeah. He's like, I know. I was like, so roll, you know. Yeah. Why do you think that uh, shift is happening? Why do you think we are seem to be making some progress? So, uh, you know, before I said that um, there were all these people who were trans who didn't transition. Mm -hmm. And I think that with so many people who are trans transitioning that they the trying to find what feels honest and authentic does not split up on binary and why should you use pronouns that don't feel right whether they are she pronouns or he pronouns I mean I just you know or and why should you not transition because neither of those pronouns fits you. So, you know, I think that it's great for people to say, you know, whether you want to talk about a spectrum or a continuum or a three-dimensional space or whatever, to 
find the place they are in now with the understanding that that might not be the same place they're going to be in in one year or three years or five years. And, you know, I was really concerned when I changed my name to pick a name that one went both ways, that felt comfortable, and that I felt like I could live with. Yeah. And, you know, the nice thing about names is you can either create one or you can choose from, you know, the million that are out there. And the problem with pronouns is that most of the world only recognizes two, you know, and it's not like you have to either be Dick or Jane when you choose a name, you've got, but with pronouns, you know, we have a very inflexible language. Are there other issues that I didn't ask you about that you would like to talk about? Um, no, I mean, I, I think, I wish I could have done what I'm doing now back in 1989. I wish there would have been a way to do it and that there really wasn't. I mean, I would have had to create it, create it myself. Um, I think if I had transitioned in 89, I would have done a binary transition, and I'm not sure whether that would have been good or bad. I mean, I think I would have lost my job and lost my partner and had to have reinvented myself and started over, and I'm not really sure that that would have been a good thing to do. Um, I'm not really sure that it was necessary to wait as long as I did, and I'm still really unclear you know, why I had that snapping moment when I did, as opposed to 10 years before or 15 years before. Yeah. When you said you retired? Yeah. From NTA? Yeah, when was that? So, uh, like two years ago. Okay. And But I'm still consulting for them. Right, right. Um, and you've been able to, trend, you, you changed your pronouns on the job, you um, said, or your name. You I changed, changed my name, name on the job, said, but, no, um, but you, people sort of got the, yeah. I mean, some people asked me directly, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I told them directly, um, but it was like once I did that flip, it's like the name had to go and the chest had to go. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that was, that was really clear to me. And people were, you know, the, by and large, people have been very cool with the name, even uh, the people who've known me for like 30 years and who are over 50 and their brain, you know, over 50, your brain just does not work exactly the same and it's, it's slow to accept changes. But uh, uh, the one thing they did do on my job is that um, every time someone slipped up, everyone else in the office would say, it's Jamie. Because they were so relieved it wasn't them. They made the mistake. Yeah, yeah. So I actually never had to correct anybody. Yeah. Because the people around me corrected constantly. Yeah. Um, oh, that's when great. I when I first changed my name, so Yeah. So they were they were they were quite reasonable about it. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you so much oh, for spending the time yeah. and yeah, it's been interesting contributing your you know, story. I, at, at some point, I should try to figure out all the dates of everything I did. I'm not a good archivist. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, if you ever want to be interviewed again about more specifics of any of it, right. I, I would love to hear. Good. And 
Um, and thank you for contributing. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. Wonderful.